Christians today can be very naive. We simply assume that if someone says he's a Christian, then he is. If someone says he's a pastor, then he must be interested in the health and flourishing of the flock. But the Bible says that isn't so. The Bible says there's such a thing as a false teacher. The Bible says there's such a thing as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometimes they're elders, pastors, or leaders in the church. Sometimes they're bloggers, writers, or celebrity speakers. That's why we have to pay attention. That's why we have to test the spirits. That's why we have to be discerning. And that's why you should read through the Bible cover to cover every year. Because if you do that, then you will know who is telling you the truth, who's telling you the whole counsel of God, and who is selling death and poison by the pound. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. We've talked a few times already over the course of this series about how it seems like we are living through the book of Acts all over again in our country. Everything old is new again. And this concern about false teachers has become a front-burner concern over the last several decades. How can we protect ourselves as believers? How can we know who's telling us the truth? That is our responsibility as Christians, and the stakes are higher now than ever before. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 20. In the last chapter, we saw a fairly major riot taking place as a result of the growth and influence of the gospel. Christianity did not sit easy in the pagan world. It challenged absolutely everything that it came into contact with. It turned the Roman world upside down. And in chapter 19, we saw that world pushing back a little bit. Thankfully, some cooler heads prevailed and things began to settle down. The story continues in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Let me just pause here and pull back the curtain a little bit. Luke told us in the last chapter that Paul intended to pass through Macedonia and Achaia in order to strengthen the churches before heading back to Jerusalem, hopefully in time for Pentecost. He sent Timothy and Erastus on ahead of him to prepare the churches for his arrival. We know from 2 Corinthians that part of what they were supposed to do was prepare the churches to participate in the Jerusalem offering. However, it was also at this time that things were falling apart in Corinth in terms of Paul's relationship with that church. Paul wrote a letter that scholars refer to as the severe letter to try and right the ship and get things back on a, a proper footing, and he sent it by the hand of Titus. He wanted Titus to inform him whether or not that relationship had been restored to the point that another visit by Paul at this time would be helpful. So all of that is on his mind as he's walking down to the harbor to take ship for Macedonia. He's just survived a riot in one town, and now he's heading towards a potential mutiny in another. Out of the frying pan and into the fire, as grandma used to say. That was life for this brother. Church planting is not for the faint of heart. We pick up the story again in verse 2. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Again, Luke doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know here, but we can patch it together from what Paul says in his letters. Apparently, 
Titus had been able to more or less smooth things over in Corinth. Uh, When Luke tells us that Paul came to Greece, having gone through Macedonia, we know that means that Paul came to Corinth in Greece, and he stayed there for three months, and from there wrote his epistle to the Romans. But Luke doesn't tell us that either. He just says in verse 3, There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So instead of just sailing there, he goes back up north, sets out from a different port. Verse 4. Sopater, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. This fairly long list of people represents the group of delegates that were assigned by the various churches to accompany the Jerusalem offering. Paul insisted on this. He didn't want even a hint of suspicion around his financial dealings. And I think there's great wisdom there. Pastors and church planters should avoid handling money at all costs. We need to be above reproach with respect to our financial dealings. And so... Paul insisted that these delegates travel with him to oversee the handing off of the money to the elders in Jerusalem. Now Paul sends the delegates out of Corinth via one port while he himself travels north into Macedonia, as I mentioned, and sets sail from there. He obviously did this to avoid some mischief makers who were intending to intercept him, delay him, cause him trouble. From Macedonian ports uh, in Philippi, he set sail and was able to join up with the others in Troas on the northwest corner of Asia Minor, where, according to Luke, they all stayed for seven days. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This little story is significant for a variety of reasons, but chief among them is the fact that it represents very early witness to the Christian practice of meeting for worship on the first day of the week. Luke says that they met on the first day of the week to break bread. I. Howard Marshall says here, The breaking of bread is the term used especially in Acts, For the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And this passage is of particular interest in providing the first allusion to the Christian custom of meeting on the first day of the week for the purpose. Now, we should probably remember that Jews generally reckon days as going from sundown to sundown, as opposed to sunup to sunup, as we might do. So their Sunday started on what we might call Saturday night. So it is very probable that this church service started at 7 or 8 p.m. on, again, what we would call 
Saturday night, what they would think of as early Sunday. And it appears that Paul preached a rather lengthy sermon, passing over into midnight, which caused this young man, Eutychus, to fall asleep, whereupon he fell out of a third-story window and was killed. Luke says that he was taken up dead, and that only after Paul went and bent over him was there life in him. So the common sense meaning of those words suggests that Luke is communicating some kind of a resurrection as opposed to just a resuscitation. This was a significant miracle, and it brought great comfort to the church. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I've always been kind of curious as to how Christians ended up worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week, when in the Old Testament they were worshiping as a group on the seventh day of the week. You cite this story in Acts 20 as an early indicator of that change, so tell us more about how that happened and and why that happened. Yeah, sure. Well, first and foremost, the shift to Sunday, the first day of the week, was in honor of the resurrection. The Gospels make it very clear that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So Matthew 28, for example, says, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Close quote. That's Matthew 28, 1-7. All right, so toward dawn on the first day of the week, so around 6 a.m., Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and when they got there, they discovered that the tomb was empty. Jesus had already risen from the dead. And so we know this happens after the Sabbath, which was the seventh day of the week, and before 6 a.m. on Sunday. And so while we can't say exactly when, we do know that Jesus rose from the dead early on the first day. And so in honor of that, Christians began meeting early on the first day of the week to celebrate what they had begun to call the Lord's Day. All right, cool. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong together for worship on a Wednesday or a Friday. It just means that Sunday has always been considered a special day, correct? Yeah, exactly that. In, in fact, it seems as though for the first generation of the church, when many Christians were still ethnically Jewish, they would have participated in synagogue worship on Saturday and then they would also have met for worship at a, as a distinct group of believers on Sunday mornings. That's why in Hebrews 10, the apostle talks about extra church, or in Greek, epesunagoge, because Christians were meeting twice for gathered worship, once in synagogue and then an extra time on Sunday morning. But that didn't really last very long, right? I mean, we've already seen in Acts how Paul would start off in the synagogue and then get kicked out. Yeah, exactly. So that does seem like a first-generation thing. Around AD 70, it appears that believers in Jesus were kicked out of the synagogue, and from that point on, they met for their special meetings on Sunday mornings, and then also frequently in smaller groups throughout the week. All right, so just to be super clear here, What if my job requires me to work on Sunday mornings, so I attend a midweek service on Wednesday night? That's not a sin, right? No, definitely not. I wouldn't say that. In in fact, Sunday was not a common pause day for much of Christian history. 
So plenty of people would have found themselves in the sort of situation you describe. I think that it is a great thing for churches to offer multiple services, if they can, to accommodate for the fact that some people are going to be unable to attend on Sunday morning. But I think it's also a great thing to make Sunday morning the centerpiece of our weekly worship calendar. It is good and fitting to get together on Sunday mornings as a large group to celebrate the glories of our risen King. Amen to that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So once again, the company splits up. Luke doesn't tell us why this time. It may again have had to do with various plots and intentions to disrupt Paul's travel. For whatever reason, some sail for Asos and some head out overland towards the same destination. Verse 14. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. You'll remember that Paul spent nearly three years in Ephesus, and he obviously developed a great affection for the people there. As any pastor knows, if you're in a hurry, you better not go through the lobby. You're going to get stopped, and you're going to be engaged in lengthy conversation. Paul is eager to get to Jerusalem on time for the festival, and he is now running behind schedule. So he bypasses the city itself, and then from the other side, summons the elders and leaders to him so that he can say a proper goodbye. It's a very touching scene. Luke says in verse 18, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood." I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders is a gold mine for pastors, leaders, and lay people alike. Paul begins by defending his own ministry. He says that he did not shrink from teaching anything that was profitable, whether publicly or privately. He preached the whole counsel of God towards the end of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Having done so, Paul declares himself innocent of the blood of all. He's referring there to Ezekiel 33. In that passage, the Lord tells Ezekiel that he is a watchman over the house of Israel. He says, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Paul says that he's innocent because he has told people the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of God. He hasn't wimped out. He hasn't edited. He hasn't shaved off the edges. He didn't care about his own popularity. He didn't care about tickling ears. He had been given a job to do by God Almighty, and by the grace of God, he had done it. He had preached the whole counsel of God, and now it's up to them how they respond. Every preacher of the gospel, every person who dares to step into a pulpit and to stand before a people and to present themselves as a teacher of divine truth would do very well to pay attention to Paul's example. Paul tells them that he loved them enough to tell them the truth, but he warns them that not everyone who follows him will do the same. Fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, some even from among you. Now, just stop and hear that, friends. Christians today can be very naive. We simply assume that if someone says he's a Christian, then he is. If someone says he's a pastor, then he must be interested in the health and flourishing of the flock. But the Bible says that isn't so. The Bible says there's such a thing as a false teacher. The Bible says there's such a thing as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sometimes they're elders, pastors, or leaders in the church. Sometimes they're bloggers, writers, or celebrity speakers. That's why we have to pay attention. That's why we have to test the spirits. That's why we have to be discerning. And that's why you should read through the Bible cover to cover every year. Because if you do that, then you will know who is telling you the truth, who's telling you the whole counsel of God, and who is selling death and poison by the pound. That's your job. You are on the hook for knowing who is telling you the truth and who is leading you down the garden path. Paul has a clean conscience. He has loved and taught them well. Now, just before we leave this passage, we should also note that in the New Testament, the terms elder, pastor, and bishop are used in an interchangeable way, suggesting that they were basically overlapping terms, describing the same initial office in the church. Luke tells us that Paul was meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus, but then in verse 28, Paul refers to them as overseers, using the Greek word episkopos, which is often translated as bishop. 
So elders were pastors of the sheep and bishops of the church. In the first generation, those words all meant the same thing. Notice also that there was a a group of them, a group of elders, a group of pastors, a group of bishops. Notice also that Paul says, inevitably, some of them would prove false. Bad leaders do not invalidate the claims of Christ. You need to know that. Bad leaders simply prove that the devil is still in the game. Where God is at work, the devil is also at work, sowing false seed alongside the good. Therefore, be on guard. Luke concludes his narrative of this moving encounter in verses 36 to 38. He says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Paul was no impersonal theologian, no sage on the stage. He was personally invested in this church. He knew them. He loved them, and he wanted to see them persevere. So he taught them thoroughly, and he warned them honestly. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, that story at the end of Acts 20 is really interesting to me and a little concerning. Paul seems to be predicting that false teachers will arise in Ephesus from among the eldership. So he's not talking about the influence of the school system or the local pagan religious leaders. He's talking about pastors and elders going astray. I mean, just the thought of that makes my blood cold a little bit. How is a regular Christian person supposed to defend themselves against that kind of threat? Yeah, well, as I said in the program audio, this is why it's so important to read through the Bible for yourself. I recommend reading through the whole Bible every year. Now, some people struggle with that kind of pace. Okay, then read through the Bible every two years. I simply can't believe that that's too high a bar for most people. It takes 15 to 20 minutes a day to read through the whole Bible in a year or just eight to 10 minutes to read through the Bible every two years. And if you can't read very well, or if that's a struggle, there are tons of audio options available now. So you can listen to two to three chapters a day and and make that schedule. So do it. That's your primary, and I would argue, your best defense. And it's so important because the, the truth is most of us believe what is said to us from the pulpit. Yeah, and that's what makes Paul's warning here so terrifying because he's saying that false teaching is going to come from the pulpit. Yeah, exactly. So if you're just taking every word from your pastor as the very word of God, then you're at risk. You are going to be led down the garden path. You need to be testing what you hear from the pulpit against the word of God open in your lap. You need to be reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and then testing everything you hear against the Bible. And you don't mean that in a rude or obnoxious way, right? No, no, I'm I'm not saying that you should be, you know, heckling your pastor during a sermon. <laughs> I'm I'm saying that you should be listening with your Bible open on your lap. And you should be talking to the pastor afterward if there's anything said from the pulpit that doesn't align with what is written in the Word of God. Now, obviously there can be some differences of interpretation, but some things are just wrong. 
no matter your philosophy of interpretation. You know, we, we can disagree on the precise details of what will happen in that season just before the triumphant return of Christ, or, or, or we can disagree on whether it's better to baptize babies or adults, or, or whether pastors should wear robes or suits or skinny jeans. Oh, no, 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 come on, not skinny jeans, all right? That's definitely out of bounds. All right, all right, fine. But the, <laughs> the point is that slight differences like that are to be expected, Okay. But no one who takes the Bible seriously should be saying that you can, you know, marry whoever you want, male or female, it doesn't matter, not given the several clear passages in the Bible that would contradict that. And no one should be denying the virgin birth. And and no one should be denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. There are just too many passages that clearly teach those things. So if you know your Bible, you shouldn't be led astray when people start saying that kind of thing from the pulpit. Paul says they will. He says this will come out of the elders, the people who are supposed to be fencing the, the pulpit, delivering and discerning the doctrine. This will come from them. And, and we know very well in this country that that has happened. And, and so there's just no excuse for people who continue to sit under that kind of teaching. If you read the Bible for yourself, then you shouldn't be led astray by false teachers. Hmm. Yes, that makes a ton of sense. Thanks for that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar, and we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.